All right. Once again, my name is Pastor Mike, not Michael. Don't be confused with me and the other Pastor Michael. So I go by Mike. I just figured it's shorter. Both of us can't have the same name. That would cause too much confusion. So today's scripture is Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 23, and I think um, Pastor Jesse made it clear last week, whereas Pastor Michael is out, all of us are in rotation, working through the book of Colossians until Pastor Michael returns. So starting in verse 15, I'm going to go ahead and read through this section. Starting in verse Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, God's holy word reads, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds and expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that in this moment, in this message, Lord, that you would receive all the glory, Lord, that your son would be lifted up, Lord. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, and Lord, that everyone in this room would leave different than when we came in, Lord, that we would have more knowledge, that we would have more wisdom, and we'd be drawn closer to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1893, Chicago, they hosted an international Colombian exhibition that millions were expected to attend. One of the exhibits was the Parliament of Religions. This would be a space where religious experts from all the different religions would come together and they would share their ideas. D.L. Moody decided not to be a part of that exhibit, but held camp meetings in tents in Jackson Park that drew 150,000 people a week. When asked if he planned to speak against the Pavilion of Religions, he said, no, I plan to make Jesus so attractive that men would be drawn to him. As we come to this book of Colossians, as last week we met Epaphras. He had come to visit Paul in Rome and tell him about the dangerous false teaching that was present in the church of Colossae. In response is how we got this letter in which we're going to go over a section of it today. But this false teaching was a mix of Jewish legalism, Gnosticism, local folk religion, and Christianity. They taught that God couldn't have created the world because they saw matter as evil and God cannot create evil. Therefore, God could not have come in human form because the body is evil. They thought that Jesus, 
instead of being God, was simply one of many iterations of God. They also taught that salvation is gained through the acquisition of divine knowledge, which frees you from the illusions of darkness. Also, they claim to follow, although they claim to follow Jesus Christ and his original teachings, they contradict him at every turn. Jesus said nothing about salvation through knowledge. He said about faith in him as Savior from our sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is, not a gift. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Furthermore, the salvation Christ offers is free and available to everyone. Not just a select few, not just those who had acquired this special revelation. Instead, we see Paul, he's hammering the false teachers and the heretical teaching like in the book of Galatians. But we see here that Paul takes another tactic. He asserts the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the head of all creation and the church. So let's get into it as we start Colossians, looking at verse 15. These verses that we will study today, they're part of a hymn, what's called a hymn. There are a lot of debate whether it's a hymn that Paul, that he wrote himself, or is a hymn that Paul found and then he later edited, or a hymn that Colossians knew well, and then they incorporated it into a letter. After reading way more about this than I probably should have, it's most likely that Paul composed this hymn to showcase the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Today I've divided the verses 15 to 23 up into four sections. The first is Jesus is Lord of creation. Jesus is Lord of creation. Second is Jesus is Lord of the church. Jesus is Lord of the church. Third, Jesus is Lord of our hearts. He's Lord of our hearts. And Jesus is Finally, and Jesus is Lord of salvation. And in those sections, I'll have subpoints, probably about 10 or 11, because Pastor Jesse challenged me, made fun of me last time when I had six, so he challenged me to make more, so I figured out 11 was a good number. All right? But we won't be here all day, I promise. So let's get into it. Let's begin in our first section, section Number one, Jesus is Lord of creation, starting in verse 15. And that verse 15 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And my first point is Jesus is Lord of creation because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Paul ended the last section with these words. Colossians chapter 1, looking at verse 13 and 14. This is how he ended the last section that Pastor Jesse preached last week. Starting in verse 13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Verse 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The mention of the son and his saving work sends Paul into doxology, sends him into a song of praise of Jesus Christ. We know that God is invisible. He cannot be seen with human eyes. He is spirit. And no one has ever seen God at any time. We define that in 1 John chapter 4. Paul breaks out into praise in his letter to Timothy. And he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Who alone 
is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. See, once I was on a trip with a bunch of friends and we went down a wrong alley. And we were held at gunpoint and robbed of all the money that we had on us. Luckily, we'd already planned for that. And so we hid the money in our socks to prepare for an incident like that. So they didn't get away with a lot of money. And we survived the incident. And it was scary, but we survived. And I noticed the room got quiet. People's head popped up when I mentioned that incident. But what's astounding is that we should be aware and our ears and our eyes and our heads should perk up when we hear about how great our God is. Jesus Christ and his supremacy is a hundred thousand times more important than what I just mentioned. But this section of scripture today might be one of the most important pieces in all of the Bible. So let's focus on two words found in verse 15, image and firstborn. He begins by asserting that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This goes all the way back to Genesis where God is said to make mankind in his own image. In Genesis chapter 1, the word image is where we get our English word icon. This doesn't mean that Jesus is a replica of God or he is similar to him. On a computer screen, there are icons, right? If you want to search for something or if I want to search for something, we usually go and we click on the icon labeled what? Google. And that tells the computer to access what we can't actually see. The Google program in the circuit board. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of of his nature, the exact expression. Now that's a word picture of a die being cast upon a coin. See, God is incomprehensible to the human mind. John wrote in John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father has been made known, made him known. Jesus is a living manifestation of God in human form. Jesus is exclusive revelation of God. In preaching terms, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And in that verse in, chapter, in John chapter 14, in this conversation, Philip responded, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Then Jesus answered. He said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is God incarnate. See, I once created a black backdrop and it had lights on it. And then once the, it was placed in a room and the lights went out and the lights on the backdrop were turned on, 
Then and only then were you able to see the patterns and the details that you couldn't see with the light on. You see, the Holy Spirit has to turn your lights on for your spiritual eyes to see God is Jesus. But he's not only the image of the invisible God, he's also the firstborn over all creation. The term firstborn can mean the first in birth order, but that is not how Paul uses it here. If that was the case, Cain is the firstborn. Firstborn means a person of superior rank or legal heir. David writes in Psalm 89 concerning the Messiah, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. Jesus has primacy, preeminence, and priority over all creation. In the fourth century, a theologian named Arius, he used a verse to make a case that Jesus was not God. He was the oldest and most beloved creature that God had created. Later on, a council was convened in Nicaea, and the creed that came out of that it refuted the heresy of Arianism. And that reads that Jesus was eternal, begotten by the Father, begotten, not made, one being with the Father. Now you may wonder what a fourth century heretic has to do with, with us today, but if you ever received a knock on your door by a Jehovah Witness, you know that this false teaching is still alive and well today, 1,500 years after Arius died. They believe that Jesus was once Michael, the archangel, a created being. See, Jesus is Lord over creation, secondly, because Jesus is creator and he has authority of creation. Verse 16. Colossians 1 verse 16 reads, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Throughout these verses, we will see over and over the words all and everything, again and again. In Jesus, all things were created. Paul then gives us a list that shows the totality of his reign. He says things in heaven and earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. These can be on earth and also the heaven beings that have authority to rule. Jesus is the agent of creation and all things that have been created through him and for him. The term for him is better translated moving towards him. The Bible teaches that the world and all that we know was not the result of any type of big bang or cosmic accident. The Bible teaches that God created everything through his son, ex nihilo, out of nothing. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we look at that, alpacas to ants, galaxies to giraffes, mountains to molehills, planets and people, we understand that God created it all. 
In Romans, Paul breaks out in praise in chapter 11. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Thirdly, Jesus is Lord of creation because Jesus is the priority and agent of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He has and always has been and always will be. John chapter 1, verse chapter 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. See, Jesus retains the supreme rank because he existed before all things. But it's important to understand that Jesus became human only at incarnation. When he created everything, he did it from outside of creation. In Revelation, John quotes Jesus as saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is Lord of creation because Jesus is the sustainer and the aim of creation. Moving on to verse 17, Jesus is the aim of creation. Verse 17, the second half of 17b, it reads, And in him all things hold together. All things find cohesion and consistency in Jesus. All things find cohesion and consistency in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it reads, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We see that hold together means to prevent something from falling into complete chaos. Without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle the nucleus of an atom. Gravity would cease to work and the planets would spiral out of orbit. Laminin, just read about this this week, laminin is the protein that holds cells together. Romans 1 says that we can know God through what he has made. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. And he wrote these famous words. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that's mine. What should knowing that Jesus is Lord over creation, what should that lead us to do? It, that it should lead us every Sunday, every time that we meet, every time that we think about Jesus to turn on something and start singing and praising. It should lead us every time we think about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he is over. It should lead us to worship. We can see that David did it in Psalm 95. He said, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks, they belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our Lord and he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Revelations chapter four, verse 11, it says the heavenly choir sings this song. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Our second section this morning is Jesus is Lord of the church. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 20. Our first point in the section is Jesus is Lord of the church because Jesus is the source of the church. Jesus is the source of the church. Starting in verse 18. And we find when we get into this section that Paul is now transitioning from physical creation. He's moving from physical creation to spiritual creation. This metaphor is only seen in Colossians and Ephesians. Jesus is the ground and the purpose of the existence of the church. The word church in Greek is always a people, never a place. Paul wouldn't understand the language, well, we're going to church. He'd probably cock his head and look and say, brother and sister, you are the church. Jesus returned to heaven, but now he has a body, and he lives out his purposes here on earth called the church. And what is that purpose? What is the purpose of the church? Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 29. We find in there that Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We see Jesus is the head of the church. And the church is global. The church is a multicultural living revolution made up of almost 2 billion people. The Pope is not the head of the church. I am not the head of the church. Only Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And the body always follows the head. Someone said to me the other day, I want to come to your church. I knew what they meant, but in my mind I said, I don't have a church. The church belongs to Jesus. If the church was a human origin, we'd probably burn the whole thing down in the very first 15 minutes. But 2,000 years later, over 2 billion people will gather today, this morning, to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, does the American church have issues? Oh, you bet you. But the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are some people that say that they love Jesus, but they can't stand the church. That's like inviting me to your house for dinner and then say, well, my wife, Tessa, she can stay home. I'm not a big fan of hers. You see, the church is Jesus's bride. And you can't have one without the other. Jesus is Lord of the church. Also, looking at the second half of 18, verse 18, 
Jesus is Lord of the church also because of his resurrection. Because of his resurrection. And that second half of verse 18 reads, He is the beginning and the firstborn from the, among the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus was not the first to be raised from the dead. We find in 1 Kings, Elijah raised the widow's son. Then we find that Jesus raised some folks too. Jesus in Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Then in Luke chapter 7, the son of the widow of Nain. And then John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus. But Jesus himself was the most important one to be raised from the dead. And those other people, if you think about it, they had to die twice, but not Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, which means that he is first in rank, the first of many, and that a new creation has dawned. Jesus defeated death. He defeated the ultimate enemy and turned death from a black hole of hopelessness into a door of destiny. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when we have those that we've lost, we grieve deeply. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. See, those who have placed their faith in Christ, on that day their physical body dies. But when they have placed their faith in Christ, and on that day that they die, Trust me, they will be more alive than you and I have ever been because they will be with our Lord and Savior. Why? Because of his resurrection. And Jesus has supremacy. He is first place in the church, in our lives, and in our hearts. Our third section today is Jesus is king of our hearts. He is king of our hearts. First point, starting in verse 19. He's king of our hearts because of his deity. Jesus reveals the father, of a, the father to us. Jesus reveals the Father to us. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In the Old Testament, God's presence was in the tabernacle and in the temple. But John wrote in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Matthew tells us his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Paul writes in chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. You see, Jesus is not another iteration of God. He is the fullness of God. That means he has God's total divine powers and his attributes. The Colossian believers didn't have to try to learn a secret knowledge from the Gnostics or those that were there teaching false things. They just needed to understand that Jesus is enough. 
Next, Jesus is king of our hearts. Looking at verse 20, because Jesus reconciles us to the Father. He reconciles us to the Father. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When the Bible talks about reconciliation, it's always a one-way thing. God sent Jesus on a rescue mission, and his cross was the bridge that reconnects us with God. He says the same thing to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. It reads, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. But notice that it wasn't just humans that was reconciled. All things will be reconciled. That includes creation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When we look forward, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. An earth without earthquakes, an earth without wildfires. And as a side note, this is a very controversial verse. But those who believe in universalism, but I don't believe that this verse substantiates universalism. And universalism primarily means that all people and things will be saved. What I want you to know today is people will suffer eternity in hell. And there is no savior, no savior for Satan and his demons. Only for those who believe and are reconciled through the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be saved. And how, you might ask, is this reconciliation accomplished? Let's take a look. Jesus lived a perfect life under the law. He was the only human ever to do that. He represented us before the Father. Jesus took the test in our place. And guess what, y'all? He made 100%. But that grade that he had, that grade was applied to our paper. And through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he took our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Leviticus chapter 17 says that only blood can be made for atonement for the soul. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John chapter 3 verse 36 says whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. Our last section this morning is Jesus is Lord over salvation. Why? Because Jesus is Lord over our past. Jesus is Lord over our past. 
And we get to verse 21 as we move through this section of Scripture today. We see that Paul is now moving out of the high theology of the Christ hymn and applies these amazing truths to the Colossian Christians. You see, starting in verse 21, that there is a change in the personal pronoun you. So let's look at verse 21. It says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. So we were alienated from God. The Greek in this phrase means something that happened in the past that still affects in the present. It means to be estranged, to be far from God. See, sin separates us from God. And who do we turn to? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 59. He says it this way. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin is a virus that we are all infected with at birth. Psalms 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We were not only far from God, but we were also hostile in our minds. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It's, it reads, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Before salvation, believers are opposed to God's will, and we are opposed to his ways. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God, he wrote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, well, that abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes that the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. See, without Christ, we are God's enemies. John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. We are enemies in thought. We are enemies in deed. Our evil mindset leads us to doing evil behavior. So what do we need? As my last sermon said, we need a but God statement. Right? That leads us to our present condition. We see in verse 22. It says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. There are some great buts in the Bible. And this is probably one of them. You were once far from God. We were all enemies of his. 
and we had no way to make peace. And then we come to this verse and it says, but. What has God done? He's reconciled me. He's reconciled you. Amen. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, it is by grace you have been saved. Furthermore, he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He goes on to write the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 17 to 19. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, but the new is here. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. See, there are many words for salvation in the Bible. John MacArthur lists five of them that I think would be encouraging to you this morning. The first one is justification. This is when a sinner stands before God in sin and declared righteousness. Second is redemption. This is when a sinner stands before God as a slave, then is granted freedom. Thirdly is forgiveness. This is when a sinner stands before God as a debtor, but his debt is forgiven. Then we have sonship. This is when a sinner stands before God as a stranger has made a son. And then reconciliation. This is when a sinner stands before God as an enemy and then he's made a friend. So how did God reconcile us? He reconciled us through the Christ's physical body through his death. See in verse 20, Paul says, Peace came through his blood that was shed on the cross. See, in Colossae, there was false teachers that were telling the believers that Jesus, he wasn't really a man. He was a sort of ghost-like creature. But we see that Paul emphasized his physical body, his physical death, his physical blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life under the law. He was the only human to ever do that. He represented us and continues to do so before the Father. And through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, in our place, he paid the penalty for our sins. Continuing on, next we have a future condition. A future condition in verse 22. It reads, to present you wholly 
faultless and blameless before him. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. See, God plans at the final judgment to have all of us looking real good before the Father. See, once we are reconciled to God, he sees us. He sees each and every one of us, not just what's on the outside, but he sees what's on the inside in each and every one of you. And he declares you are holy because each and every one of us after we are reconciled, will be covered with Jesus Christ's righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I delight greatly in the Lord, for my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness. You see, holy means set apart. We are to be set apart from the culture that we live in. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Listen to this. A boat in water is good, but water in the boat, well, that's bad. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Blameless is a sacrificial term. Priests would inspect an animal to see if it was able to be used for sacrifice. Now, that animal had to be spotless. The animal had to be without blemish in order to be a sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they are red as crimson, but yet they shall be like wool. Faultless means that we are free from accusation or even the charge of it. Satan is called the accuser, and he loves to remind us how unholy we are, how many blemishes that we have. Satan accuses you and me of being too sinful for God to ever reconcile us. Why would we need reconciliation is what Satan says to us. But look at these words from Paul in Romans chapter 8, 33. And 34, it says, who brings any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. J.R. Bridges writes, It's been said that true freedom in Christ is when we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. We have nothing to hide because Jesus has already covered our sin. We have nothing to lose because we have already committed to picking up our cross in pursuit of Christ. We have nothing to prove because Christ has already taken care of it. All our sin and selfish ambitions our vain desires and self-glorifying dreams. So next time Satan reminds you of your past, you go ahead and remind him of his future. Lastly, we should have evidence of salvation. Evidence of salvation. Moving on to verse 23. Verse 23. 
Verse 23 reads in Colossians chapter 1, If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The better translation of the first phrase is provided that you continue, and I'm fully confident that you will. Paul's not saying that you could lose your salvation. Scripture is clear that once we are born again, you can't go ahead and undo that. John chapter 10, look at verse 27, 29, it says, My sheep, they listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what he's giving is evidence of being born again, continuing in the faith, being established and firm and not moving away from the hope that is only found in the gospel. When I meet someone who starts off with a story of these words, when they say, I used to be a Christian and I stopped them. So that can't be true. Once you become a butterfly, you can't turn yourself back into a caterpillar. The sad truth is that they were never believers in the first place. Jesus said these haunting words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And listen to the response of Jesus. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's why Paul encouraged the Christians in Corinth to examine themselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Established, firm, not moved. Those are all Greek words used in constructing buildings. Colossae, if you looked up, look it up, it's on an earthquake fault. And buildings have to be strong in order for the foundation to survive. In fact, shortly after Paul wrote this letter, Colossae was devastated by a massive earthquake in 60 AD. This is a gospel of hope that they had heard and that they had been proclaimed to that every creature under heaven, meeting even in their little city of Colossae. This is the gospel that they were told to hold on to. They don't need secret knowledge or to follow Jewish rules or anything like that. All they needed was Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. One commentator sums up Paul's thoughts, and he breaks it down verse by verse. 
It reads, those who were at one time alienated are those who have now been given a share in the inheritance of God's holy ones. Those who are hostile in the mind and evil deeds are those who have been rescued from the power of darkness and whose calling is the knowledge of God and every good deed. Those who are reconciled through the death of Christ are those that have been transformed into his kingdom. Those who he now presents as holy, blameless, and free of accusation are those who in him have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now, too, brothers and sisters, we have this ministry of reconciliation that's been passed on to us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this, Lord, this letter to Colossae, Lord, Lord, may we not leave this room changed, Lord. Lord, may we leave this room on fire for you, Lord, happily willing to share your gospel, daily wanting to worship you, that you came to know us. You invited us to know you. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.